This season of Threshold is underwritten by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. So, I fell in love in the Arctic. Now, I know what you're thinking. That word, Arctic, it's nothing but bad news. Climate change, polar bears, it's all really, really sad. But on this day, in July 2017, in Greenland, I had a completely different sort of experience of the Arctic than what we're hearing about in the news. And I happen to have my microphone on, so just come along with me for a minute as I walk through a maze of sled dog houses with no idea of what's waiting for me just ahead. Welcome to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and I'm in a place called Alulasat. It's a small town on Greenland's west coast. There's a steep, rocky hill in front of me, and off to my right, the ocean is sparkling in the sun. I step onto a long boardwalk that snakes off through a marshy field of tall green grass, and it leads me down into a valley where I come upon this cheerful notice. Extreme danger. Do not walk on the beach. Death or serious injury might occur. Risk of sudden tsunami waves caused by calving icebergs. Duly noted. Not going to the beach. And then the path begins to lead up. It cuts into the side of the hill, and for a few minutes, all I can see is rock. Yeah, I'm coming up. Until I come around a curve. Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I just came up over this little rise. <laughs> There's like a mountain of ice right, right in front of me. Oh, as I crest the hill, I can suddenly see a range of massive snowy peaks, and it takes a while for my brain to register what it is I'm seeing. These aren't actually mountains, not like soil and rock covered in snow. I'm looking at peaks of solid ice. Some of them are 3,000 feet high. It's, it's insane. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. It looks like it can't even be real. With every step I take, I can see farther and more. Miles and miles of ice descending down into this fjord where a long, thick finger of the Greenland ice sheet gets squeezed and crumpled before breaking off into the sea. It's jagged in some places, smooth in other places. It almost looks a little bit like it's made out of sugar like meringue or something, but filling the landscape. The Greenland ice sheet is basically an ice cube that's almost as big as the state of Alaska. It's an artifact from the last ice age, 10,000 feet thick in the middle, slowly melting into the sea. I really wanted to touch it and walk on it, but it's super dangerous in this spot. The ice is shifting and cracking, so I just sat there on this ridge and stared at it for hours. It, 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 they're so big, the ice, the ice chunks are so big that they, they make like their own shadows and shapes. I mean, it really, it's like Manhattan. It's like the skyline of Manhattan, but ice. Like I said, I fell in love that day. Listening to this tape now, I can hear all of the embarrassingly obvious symptoms, like the way it turned me into a dazed, tongue-tied goofball. Another thing it reminds me of is cake like giant pieces of cake, cake to feed uh, giants. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to do but laugh because it's just so unreal. 
For as long as human beings have walked this planet, there's been ice in the Arctic. It's always been there, our constant companion, helping to keep the climate calm while we've been figuring out how to build civilizations. But now this region is warming twice as fast as the rest of the globe. The whole planet has a fever, but the Arctic's fever is worse. If you took all this ice and converted it to water and added it to the ocean, sea level would come up seven meters. That's glaciologist Joel Harper. We're going out onto the Greenland ice sheet with him later this season, and he says that what's happening in the far north affects all of us, no matter where we live. We depend on the frozen stuff in the Arctic to keep our climate stable, but it's all approaching a threshold, moving closer and closer each year to a series of tipping points that could push climate change into a whole nother level of bad. We wanted to get a better understanding of these processes, and we wanted to know what it feels like to the four million Arctic people who are watching their home melt around them. So for this season of our show, we went on a circumpolar journey to find out what the Arctic is, how it's changing, and why that matters to all of us. And we discovered that there are so many reasons to love the Arctic. The ice is just the beginning. Welcome to season two of Threshold. What happens here should be of concern to everyone, no matter where they live. We can't fight Mother Nature. We can't fight the wave actions or the storms. It's there. It's real. I mean, we're talking about climate erosion. It happens to people's cultures, too. It's all about those people who are ruling the world and earning the money on the world. They don't hear us. You have to address all of these issues that are connected to each other, and that includes culture that is part of that environment. The Arctic is sort of the home of thresholds. It's the home of tipping points. It's a summer night, and the kids of Shishmaref, Alaska, are on the loose. How are you, Walter? Good. How's your day? My day is good. How's your day, sir? Good. (laughs) What are you guys playing? We're just playing around. Just playing around. This is Walter Nyakpuk. He's 10 years old. What's wrong? Right here, my ribs hurt. I I ran too much. Uh He takes a break from this swirling, giggling kid mosh pit to catch his breath and ponder the universal rituals of childhood. Girls are supposed to be chasing us. Why are the girls supposed to be chasing the boys? Because they like them. <laughs> We're going to spend the first two episodes of this season in Shishmaref, a small town on a barrier island in northwestern Alaska, just shy of the Arctic Circle. About 600 people live here. There's a church, a school, two stores, and around 150 houses connected by a couple of paved roads and footpaths through the sand. This island is tiny, and kids here are pretty free to roam. Tonight, everyone under the age of 15 seems to have spontaneously gathered here, in a wide spot between some houses, to chase each other around in the sand. What's your favorite thing about living in Shishmaref? It's fun. Why is it fun? Because there's a lot of kids. There are a lot of kids. There's so many kids. And we can be free. And you can be free. Yeah. From Walter's point of view, Shishmaref is a kind of paradise, a whole island of free-range, kid-friendly habitat. But the paradox of Shishmaref is that it might be both one of the safest and one of the most dangerous places to live in America today. Because this small community is one of the places where climate change is hitting the hardest in the Arctic. 
Shishmaref is located just north of the Bering Strait. That's the narrow waterway that separates Russia from Alaska. It's the only town on Sarachev Island, and everywhere you go, you can see the waves and hear the constant roar of the ocean. This island is only about a quarter mile wide. That's 440 yards, or less than half a kilometer. And it's getting smaller. It's changed a lot. It was always frozen, like the end of October. It no longer is. This is Kate Kokyok. She grew up here, and now she teaches kindergarten at the Shishmaref School. And she says the sea ice used to serve as a buffer for this little island. It would freeze up in the fall before Arctic storms blew in, which meant that the wind and waves battered the edge of the ice instead of the edge of the island. But now, as the climate warms, sea ice is forming later and later, and waves that used to break far away from the coastline now slam directly into Sarachev Island. Like, you look outside and you want it to freeze end of October, first part of November, because that's when we start to have our storms. But it hasn't been freezing then. At the same time, the frozen soil, or permafrost, that the town is built on has been thawing. And the combined effect is that the ocean is essentially eating Shishmaref, mostly in small, relentless nibbles. But every so often, a major storm blows in, and the waves take big, deadly bites out of the coastline. According to studies by Louise Farquharson of the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, between 2003 and 2014, Sarachev Island eroded at an average rate of 2.3 meters annually. That's seven and a half feet of land washing into the sea each year. We did lose a lot of land. Like where the seawall is now, that's where we used to have our playground. So all of that is gone. Kate has lots of memories of places that are now underwater. Well, if you go down like that way, that's where like 10 to 15 houses were. We're talking inside her classroom and she's pointing out the window south of the school. And like the last house that's there now, there was a house next to it a road, and then another house. If you actually like visualize that, you can see how much land was lost there. I've never been in a place like Shishmaref before, where the community's mental map is so different from the current physical map. It's like there's a drowned ghost town ringing the island, full of images and stories. You know, I remember in 97, they were emptying out a house because it was shaking and it was undercutting, so they were worried that it was gonna fall over. So during the storm, They were emptying out the house, and they lifted it up and moved it a few feet onto the road. (laughs) You know, so that's the one that I remember. Kate says 2005 was another pivotal year. A huge storm hit, washing out the land under more of the houses. People gathered in the windy darkness to get the residents out and save as many of their belongings as possible. Kate's house didn't fall in, but it was one of the next in line. Every time I think about it, I just want to tell people my house now would have been right where the seawall is, had they not moved it. Kate and her husband John moved their house closer to the middle of the island after that storm, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers built a new, stronger seawall. Yeah, and if it wasn't for the seawall, probably more would have been taken away, and had they not moved the houses, they probably would have just fallen in. The seawall offers some protection, but it's a temporary fix. This is an extremely low-lying island, and without the insulating barrier of the ice, eventually the ocean is going to win. The people of Shishmaref recognize that they're not safe here, and in 2016 they voted to relocate the village to the mainland.
We had cliffs over there. This was the start of the cliffs. Dean Kazaguk is giving me a walking tour of Shishmaref. We're standing on a sandy ledge just outside of the grocery store, maybe 15 feet above the beach. And like Kate, he's trying to help me see what used to be in this spot back when he was a kid. You were standing on ground level, but like here, we would look at the top maybe, like so. Oh, wow. He's pointing high up above us, using his hand to show the shape of some big dunes that used to overlook the beach. That's how much ground fell over. What are you, uh, what do you think's gonna happen to Shishmarif in the future? Gonna move, I think, yeah. Do you want to? Yeah, I do. We're surrounded, nowhere to run when there's another storm. Yeah, how would you guys evacuate if there was a big storm? I have no idea. Just have to run with it, go with the storm. Wow. Yeah. Scary. Let's go. Look some more. After the 2005 storm, dramatic pictures of houses falling into the sea showed up in news outlets around the world, and Shishmaref became something of a poster child for climate change in the Arctic. But the community had already been dealing with erosion problems for decades at that point. In fact, Shishmaref has voted to relocate three times. The first was way back in 1973. Sarachev is a barrier island, and people here knew it wouldn't last forever. But when a new school was built a few years after that first vote, the push to relocate lost steam. Of course, at that time, no one knew what was coming. They were aware erosion would eventually be an issue, but no one understood how much climate change would accelerate the process. And this is a really important detail to keep in mind, because it's often the way it works with climate change. Our greenhouse gas emissions are frequently speeding up or intensifying processes that are already underway. And as one climate scientist we'll talk to later this season says, speed kills. The rate of change has a huge impact on how well people or animals or any living things can adapt. And in Shishmaref, the rate of change has been really fast, not only in terms of climate, but also culture. Off the western coast of Alaska, on a small island in the Bering Sea, in as harsh an area for human life as our planet has to offer, is the Eskimo village of Shishmaref. I'm with Dean in his house now. These are the houses that were there. Oh, on that cliff more. Yeah, past oh. that store, right yeah. where the road goes up. Dean is kind of a de facto historian of Shishmaref. He has a collection of video footage, which he's shot during some of their worst storms, and he owns a short film made by the U.S. Department of Defense in 1963. It's a cross between a semi-fictionalized portrait of daily life in Shishmaref and army propaganda. During the Cold War, the army recruited National Guard members in Shishmaref and other coastal Alaskan communities. After all, the border with the Soviet Union was just 100 miles away. This close to the border of the USSR, everything seen or heard is important. The film is part of a series called The Big Picture. Dean shows up in it as an adorable four-year-old, wearing a parka with a fur-lined hood, watching the bigger kids enter the school. There's George. There I am. <laughs> oh, you're so cute! Oh my God, you're so cute! 
<laughs> this film would be fascinating to anyone with an interest in Cold War history, but for Dean, it's also a home movie. As the camera zooms in on different faces, he names almost everyone. That's Clarence, that's Willie, Esau, Davy, used to be my neighbor, hmm. Vincent, my uncle Ray. In this government film, the narrator refers to the people of Shishmaref as Eskimos, but that's actually a label ethnic Europeans applied to several groups of people in the north. Today, most people in Shishmaref identify as in Yupiak. That's a subgroup of the Inuit who live all the way from eastern Russia to Greenland. Our old church, there's a choir. As we watch the film together, Dean points out swaths of land that are now gone and buildings that have been lost or moved. Does it make you sad to think about moving? About moving? Moving the village? I don't know. I don't really think about it. Yeah. I just go day by day. When I see this history, it makes me realize how much people have invested here. Yeah. But I don't want it to protect in place. The population will grow. It will certainly lose space. The square footage of this island shrinks year by year, and overcrowding is a real issue, just as Dean said. But there are other threats, too. Any one of these monster storms could come spinning in off the Bering Sea and, and overwash a village. This is Joel Clement. He's a scientist and policy analyst who used to work at the U.S. Department of the Interior. We've, we've got the information that shows that they could be overtopped by six feet. Um, they don't have any way to get out of harm's way right now. So they're in, they're in a tough spot in the fall with the storm season. Um, that's what I worry about. That's the top level thing I worry about. Joel was one of the people leading the federal government's effort to help Shishmaref under the Obama administration. But shortly after Donald Trump was elected, his work came to a halt. We'll have more after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and I'm talking to Joel Clement, the former director of the Office of Policy Analysis at the U.S. Department of the Interior. Joel was hired in 2010, when Barack Obama was president and Ken Salazar was the department secretary. I remember the secretary uh, bringing me into his office uh, one day and saying, OK, you're my Arctic guy. Uh, let's figure out what we need to do there and, and let's get it right. To Joel, getting it right meant getting Washington, D.C. on track with what most people in Shishmaref already knew. They needed to move, and they needed to do it soon. This wasn't a secret, and it wasn't just happening in Shishmaref. The Government Accountability Office had already issued two reports by that time, one in 2003 and another in 2009, identifying 31 Alaskan communities that were in, quote, imminent danger. And at the top of that list were four towns, Kivalina, Nutok, Shaktulik, and Shishmaref. So we wrote a report called uh, Managing for the Future in a Rapidly Changing Arctic. Uh, submitted that to the president. This report was an attempt to move from talk to action with local communities in the driver's seat. But Joel says the elephant in the room was the money. 
Nothing in their report could be implemented without funding, and creating a new town from the ground up is expensive, especially in a place as remote as northwestern Alaska. A 2004 study by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers estimated the cost for Shishmaref to move at $179 million. And these 600 people don't have that kind of money. They don't have any kind of money, actually. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 40% of people in Shishmaref live below the poverty line. Many homes don't have running water. And Joel tried to make the argument that keeping citizens safe is government's job, no matter how much money a community has or doesn't have. I mean, government should be scrambling to try and find ways and dollars to get people out of harm's way and find innovative ways to do that. People from Shishmaref and other Alaskan communities traveled to D.C. to make the case for funding climate change resilience in the Arctic. But Congress was not supportive. In fact, many elected officials were, and still are, not willing to accept that humans are changing the climate at all. So finding dollars was very difficult. We did manage to get some grant money and some grant programs spun up. But uh, boy, it just, you know, it's, it's uh, embarrassingly difficult to find uh, those dollars within the federal government. In December 2016, just before President Obama left office, he signed an executive order establishing a new climate resilience area. Basically, it was a structure for protecting marine resources and coordinating climate change projects in the northern Bering Sea, with tribal leaders at the helm. And this included a lot of the villages that we're talking about here, and it was, it was a way for them to get a seat at the planning table uh, for the region. Joel was optimistic that this executive order would finally lead to meaningful action for communities in the Alaskan Arctic. Donald Trump had been elected president in November, and he famously called climate change a hoax, but... Frankly, despite all the anti-climate change rhetoric out of these new folks, uh, I wasn't worried about climate change adaptation because, you, you know, you're you're addressing issues that are very clear in front of you. People are being directly impacted by climate change. It's not a model. It's not a theory. Uh, it's fact. And, and so I wasn't, I, I wasn't worried. I thought that would work would continue. And of course, uh, I was being very naive. On March 1st, 2017, Ryan Zinke was sworn in as the new Secretary of the Interior. By the end of April, Obama's executive order was revoked, and all the plans for helping these Arctic Alaskan communities were dead in the water. The Bering Sea tribal elders quickly wrote a letter saying, what gives? We thought everybody was okay with this. It was a clear shot across the bow that, hey, it doesn't matter whether you're working on reducing greenhouse gas emissions or protecting people in peril, anything that has a whiff of climate change to it uh, has to stop. For Joel, it was clear that denying climate change meant ignoring the fact that people were in real danger. So he kept sounding the alarm. So I was speaking very publicly in Alaska and elsewhere about the work, saying, hey, resilience and adaptation are just as important, if not more important than they ever were. We need to continue to do this work. And then a few months later, he received a surprising email. Uh, Reassigning me from my job as director of the policy office to uh, a job in the office that collects and disperses royalty income from oil, gas, and mining companies. And uh, how did that how did that strike you? <laughs> well, I mean, immediately I could tell that this was retaliation for my climate change work, and and that this was 
not good news, but when I found out that dozens more senior executives like me had been reassigned, I realized that it was I was part of a purge. And, uh, and I started thinking, how, how, how on earth do I respond to this? Because this is clearly inappropriate. Joel has no training in accounting. He says it was obvious that he was not qualified for the job he was reassigned to. He was convinced this was an attempt to silence him. So he found a lawyer and filed a whistleblower complaint, which is currently being investigated by the Office of Special Counsel. He also wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post and started speaking publicly whenever possible, trying to shine a light on what's at stake here. And what's at stake are the people of Shishmaref and other Arctic Alaskan communities. This isn't really about his job, he says. It's about a hostility to science at the highest levels of government, which he believes is putting the American people in real danger. What would you say to people who are like, um, well, it's your problem. Why should uh, the state of Alaska or the federal government or anyone else help you if you need $200 million to move? Go find $200 million and good luck to you. Yeah, well, they'll, they'll be saying the same thing to Miami pretty soon, right? So, I mean, what happens up there uh, in the face of climate change is an important bellwether for what's going to happen in the rest of the coastal areas of the United States, right? Are we going to leave American citizens to their own devices to get themselves out of harm's way? Uh, or do we provide uh, assistance to, to do that, right? I mean, we are all American citizens and we have some expectation that we're not on our own, right? And, and that's one of the things that makes this country great. And my gosh, I mean, we're going to be seeing this very same dynamic elsewhere around the country. And as always, the poor, the communities of color, the have-nots are the ones that suffer the most. I mean, how how likely do you think it is that a, a storm would overtop the island? I mean, have people penciled out the odds like, oh, this is a 10% chance per year or a 40% chance or... No, no one has penciled out the odds to my knowledge. I, I think based on the information that I have and the trends that we're seeing now, I would guess that within 10 years, we're going to lose a village and maybe more. And hopefully that doesn't happen. I, I hate the thought of it because there's possible uh, risk of, of loss of life out there. We reached out to Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke for comment. He did not respond. Like many communities in Alaska, Shishmaref is not connected to any roads. And it would be really hard for planes or boats to get here in the midst of a raging storm. It doesn't take much imagination at all to picture it. The winds wailing, the waves rising, and the frigid Arctic water rolling and crashing over this island on a dark winter night. It's a nightmare scenario, and it's completely possible. Can you tell me what's your favorite thing about living in Shishmark? Um, swimming. This is Emma Olana. She's nine. Oh, can you swim on a beach sometimes? Um, yeah, kind of, if you want to. The core questions in Shishmaref are the same ones at the center of the whole climate change conundrum. How bad does it have to get before we decide to care? Are we only motivated to help in response to tragedies, or can we find the same motivation to try to prevent them? And can we get real about what's happening and come together despite our differences 
to solve practical problems. But they need to see our lifestyle, who we are at Inkpel. This is Stanley Taktu. There's a lot more to this story, so we're staying in Shishmaref to hear from him and others next time on Threshold. Production partners for this season are Montana Public Radio and PRI's The World. Our major sponsor is the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Threshold is also supported by the Park Foundation and by you, our listeners. You can find pictures from our reporting trip to Alaska, a link to that 1963 Army film from Shishmaref, and a whole lot more at thresholdpodcast.org. Threshold is created by Nick Mott, Rachel Kramer, Cheryl Skabicki, and me, Amy Martin, with help from Frank Allen, Jackson Barnett, Josh Burnham, Michael Connor, Rosie Costin, Matt Hurlihy, Rachel Klein, Zoe Rome, Nora Sachs, Maxine Spire, and Zach Wilson. Special thanks to Daydre McMullen. Our music is by Travis Yost. <laughs>